Hi everybody, welcome back to Jointly Venturing. This is episode 13. We've had uh, quite a long hiatus um, over the past couple of months, being busy with various projects, but we're back on track. And today we're going to talk about something very contemporary, very much in the news. Um, I'm here today, by the way, with Michael Moorhead, and we're going to talk about Extinction Rebellion, um, which has, of course, been getting a lot of global media attention for all the right reasons, and the issue of the law of plunder and how those two uh, relate to one another. So, Michael, uh, take it away. Yeah, the uh, law of plunder um, is really a um, uh, translation of um, some principles of law from the 1850s um, and um, helps us understand neoliberalism, really, because uh, back in the day, um, there was a clear principle that no one should plunder anyone and that there should be no taxation of anyone's wealth. If someone was strong enough to become wealthy, then they should be allowed to keep that money and they would, if you like, noblesse oblige their servants and everything would be fine. And um, as opposed to a, uh, a state or a government it would plunder that individual's wealth and then redistribute it into some sort of naughty socialism. And, um, you know, these concepts have, you know, attracted a lot of jurisprudence. So we now have a legal system that is encouraged to protect people's property, uh, protect their liberty, and understandably, uh, provide a buffer between the individual and the state. So within that framework, we've we're now starting to think about just how much a neoliberal society has plundered the natural world. And this is, I guess, today, Scotty, we're talking about extinction rebellion, and and to what degree is the government responsible for allowing capitalists? to externalise their costs and and to miss out on the opportunities we might have had for to have a more pristine environment. Um, Extinction Rebellion has got a fantastic symbol, uh, an, an, an empty hourglass in a circle. What are your thoughts, Scott, about how this symbol could uh, attract sort of following across the planet where... You know, it, it transcends national boundaries. It does seem that, you know, climate change and the sort of risks to species has transcended national boundaries. We've got an extinction rebellion here in Melbourne, groups across the planet. Um, you and I were travelling in East Gippsland and saw a fantastically big sign not so long ago. Uh, so this year is a very interesting year. 2019 is very interesting as to how people... Uh, are asking to be told the truth about the externalities, about the lost opportunities, is looking them in the face. What's your view on all that, mate? I mean, the very existence of Extinction Rebellion, um, and it's very recent founding, um, by the way, um, just opens a Pandora's box of issues when it comes to, uh, you know, what it means to be human in the year 2019. And ultimately forces us to ask the ultimate existential question, which is, 
what is the meaning of our species in the first place? I mean, should human should humans continue on indefinitely into the history, into future history immeasurable by by modern technology, or should we just accept that we have one Earth, we use up everything that's on it, and that was great, and the party's over, and off fly a few billionaires into outer space and try to recreate some semblance of human society somewhere else. I mean, is that really the stage that we've reached? Are we really so incredibly small-minded, so unbelievably greedy, so obsessed with exploiting every single nook and cranny that Earth has to offer, that we're willing to put the, the very existence of our species on the line in order to have one more stake, in order to have a slightly bigger house, in order to have our own private jet, or whatever it may be. I mean, are we really willing to do that as a species? And that's the type of question that Extinction Rebellion um, really urges us all to ask. Ultimately, what kind of planet do we want to have? What kind of species are we? Are we not advanced enough to be able to organize ourselves politically and economically and socially in a manner that presupposes the need to continue the existence of our species, not for just 10 more years, but maybe for 10,000 years. Shouldn't our systems be predicated on that basis, that human life is worth saving, that the human race is worth preserving and expanding and allowing it to evolve into directions far, far, far better than it has ever reached to this day? Yeah, look, Scott, I think... You I think it is a question of responsibility for, for for our species, for humans. It is a question of what responsibility we accept for the welfare of the planet and its other species and its beauty. Uh, and, and, and really, that accepting responsibility uh, it could entail sacrifice. It probably will entail sacrifice. But it is um, it's those... Twin, and I believe those two things go together. Um, so accepting responsibility and, and making sacrifice, is that a, something that needs to be a collective thing or can it be done individually? And, and this, I think, is where you know this podcast really seeks to travel as we jointly venture, Scott, you and I and our listeners uh, and our guests. Are we prepared to give meaning to sort of responsibilities we need to accept by recognizing some form of sacrifice because the I want more syndrome of our society and the I want more because I am being told I am not good enough without it the shopping mall version of life I've worked all day now I want to spend something for me you know, now I want to buy something to make me feel better. Um, is there any room in our neoliberal system for accepting that you know, needs and wants can be other than just financial? Because when we translate needs and wants into dollars, very easy to neglect all those things that money can't buy. For example, a planet not ravaged by climate change, a, a planet not ravaged by fossil fuel extraction. And is there a way to do it smarter so that 
you know, the things that we want. I mean, the things that the advertising and marketing aspects of our society say we want and, and inculcate in us what we want. Can those that be done smarter so that you know, what we want has more of a bucolic feel? You know, so that, I mean, it's, it's like a beautiful garden planet. It's not just a quarry. It's not just a freeway. It's not just a shopping mall. And, and the gardeners, though, seem to be sort of greedy. And, and, and there seems to be uh, no rules. But there's no rules that apply to the planet. And, and, and you know that I look back and, 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 and look at the decisions of the International Court of Justice the United Nations level, I look back on those decisions and, you know, we can see in the 80s that court lost its jurisdictional heaviness. It lost a lot of power. Um, it, 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 it became just a bureaucracy. Um, it, it, it's, it doesn't reflect a value system anymore. Now, obviously, the only parties that can litigate in the International Court of Justice and nation states. But wouldn't it be interesting if there were, if there was a, a world parliament that could actually articulate for all of humanity some non-financial values that could then drive regulation, not to the point of stopping growth, but to the point of just setting our sails as a planet through these stormy waters directing growth so that it wasn't just financial because just financial has some pretty nasty effects seems to have seems to have and 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 one of them is is just not telling the truth and i think to me that's what extinction rebellion is is really asking it's like can we please have the truth please we we want to know the truth and the truth that seems to be confused is you know what is the science we want to, we want to understand what our best minds are saying about how we should be managing the planet as a garden not as a quarry now they're my own views and my own language on it um, but it's really really interesting to see that um, you know the symbol of the empty hourglass has just so connected people all around the planet it's very interesting to me that that seems to be something that um, I think it's come from Britain. It's come out of Britain. Um, I've done a little bit of research on the founders. They they, they seem to be uh, just normal humans, well-educated uh, normal people who who've um, been able to really connect the dots and, and have have a movement. It unfortunately seems to be relying on the old you know Bob Brown tactics of you know getting in front of the bulldozer. But hey, maybe. Maybe that's the only way that um, that we can actually make a new, make something new. And how do you how do you feel about that sort of like? There's a little bit of anger in the in the tactics. I, I mean, that's how it gets portrayed in the media. I mean, so the media will go, well, hang on, you can't do this. It's disruptive. We've had it here in Melbourne. It was pretty hard to get around town there for a week or so, a couple of weeks back. How do you feel about the, the those sort of tactics? I was giving a talk the other day at a, at a high school, <clears throat> a local high school here in Australia, and um, the, the basic theme of the talk was, you know, how bad does it have to get before we really 
realize collectively that we need fundamental change. And I think it reached that point long, long, long ago. I mean, who would have imagined that we would be living in an era when every single day, 100 to 200 different species go extinct? As if it's nothing, you know? And as if it's part of life for all of these species continually to die off because of the economic choices collectively we have decided to make and the way that we've acted upon the economic structures that uh, that we're all a part of. And, you know, I think to me, that's really one of the most shocking things. If you combine species extinctions with the very real and, and growing and worsening effects of climate change and all of the other environmental problems that are affecting the earth, together with growing nationalism, growing authoritarianism, reduced forms of democracy, greater inequality at levels which we have never before seen, and a whole range of other very negative developments, how can we do anything other than have an organization or a movement like Extinction Rebellion that sort of says enough is enough, we need to reevaluate, and in many respects we need to start over. We certainly have achieved a lot. I mean, Global Wealth, the Credit Suisse Bank yesterday came out with an, their latest annual report on uh, global wealth. There's $360 trillion of wealth in the world today. Every single one of those dollars in one way, shape, or form came originally from nature, gifted to us for free that we turned into money. And there's almost 1% of humanity that's uh, currently... A millionaire. And, you know, clearly massive advances have been made in recent decades, uh, well, all throughout the history of humanity in many, many respects. But we're really reaching this cutoff point now where it's a question of do we reorient ourselves? Do we reevaluate? Do we try to really structurally reconsider the way we've been doing things? Or do we simply continue on the same path, let climate change get truly out of control? Let global temperatures go higher and higher. Let more and more species go extinct. Have all of the social and economic problems that are associated with that. All just because we're not able to envisage a world in which we have a much more regulated, a much more sustainable, a much more conscious way of managing ourselves. And I think that's the crisis juncture um, that we're at right now. I mean, this is not a laughing matter. When you stand back and look at the shape of the world today, I mean, it is truly worrisome. Just look at the melting ice caps for a start. Look at Antarctica. Look at Greenland. Look at the Arctic. I mean, we are talking ice-free areas of the Arctic, which have never been ice-free since the modern age began. Um, and that's just one of hundreds of examples I could give of how deep and how problematic climate change already is. And yet we almost have this blindness to it at the policy level. People realize, people in the streets marching realize how, how big of a problem this is. But when it comes to policymakers, even in the progressive countries, um, how many are truly doing everything possible to not only stop the growth in CO2 emissions, but to reduce it to levels that will allow a sustainable future to emerge? Virtually none. How many countries are truly prepared to deal with the question of climate displacement have structural policies in place 
to deal with the fact that literally hundreds of millions of people are going to have to move from where they're living now. I would say no country is actually taking the lead on that issue in a sufficient way. And I could give hundreds of other examples, you know? So it's not just a world about economic growth. It's not just a question of increasing GDP, you know? It's a question of, we are all in this together. Every single one of us is fully reliant on planet Earth for our own existence. And the sooner we realize that collectively, the sooner we can start making decisions that ensure our survival as a species. And I'm just very fearful. Um, no matter where I go in the world, and that's lots of places, you know, I always stop and I stand back and I watch what people are doing for an hour or two hours, whether it's on a street or in a market or in a shopping mall or at a sporting event, whatever it is. And the driving force, the most powerful thing that's driving almost all of them is this obsession with consuming. You know, whether it's driving faster, whether it's eating more hot dogs, you know, whether it's buying more disposable clothing, whatever it may be, it seems that it's so much easier to drive people with that ability to consume more, to drive them and on the basis of, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we kind of preserved the existence of the human race a little bit longer? You know, and that's a really worrisome trend. Well, there's, Scott, um, you know, there are some legal principles around these topics. Um, one that comes to mind is, um, is that you know, to fail to protect something uh, may destroy it. And, you know, we, we have here in Australia, we have treaty obligations with the UN that have resulted in the environment protection and biodiversity legislation we have at federal and state levels. And, um, you know, that the, the policymakers are supposed to apply that legislation in a way that protects and, and, and protects from destruction that which is so special because it's so diverse and the opposite occurs though in in our sort of in the neoliberal world the opposite occurs it's like a pay-to-play thing um, so in fact the department of environment uh, the federal department of environment the state department of environments the local government version of it uh, is just a, a licensing system f uh, to to destroy Ah, oh, yes, we are protecting the environment. You want to damage the environment. Well, you have to pay to get a license. And you've got to provide a report that says it's it's going to somehow, there's going to be some sort of offset or something. And what are you going to do? Offset the planet? What are we? It's ridiculous. And so consumption and the accumulation of wealth as a indicator of success, I get that. We all get that. We all get that the more money you have, the more successful you are within our society. We all get that. Everyone gets that. Just ask someone who's got no money. They're the ones that get it the most. I mean, how much freedom have you got if you've got no money? Well, you know, it's, a, it's the quest of every Buddhist monk to have no possessions and have no money. So that's the opposite uh, way of measuring success. And I think, you know, we don't want to lose that. In our society, you know, transcendence of material things, the transcendence of desire, the transcendence of monetary need or other forms of need uh, over and above what are necessary for our physical existence, you know, is 
in my books, very admirable approach to way to spend, you know, one's life. And I think that was a lot more prevalent in earlier periods of time than today. And today we've really, really shifted in that direction that you just mentioned of measurement of success in very big quote marks um, being one's uh, bank account. Well, that's you know? the, isn't that the premise of the wealth report, Credit Suisse report? Isn't the premise that money is a measure? Well, money is definitely a measure, but I, I'm just talking about the whole question of what, you know, what success truly means and what, a, what ultimately a, a, a worthy human life you know, truly means. Well, collectively? And, yeah, yeah, collectively. Yeah. So, uh, you know, certainly enough for everybody. You know, there's more than enough but, but for should, everybody. But should, should, it, should everyone be entitled, or not entitled, that's not the right word, should everyone be able to, should, can everyone on the planet aspire to a middle-class Western lifestyle? And the answer is pretty obviously no. Well, I mean, um, you know, uh, unless ecologists we've got some technological say, changes, right? We, I mean, for everyone in the world to to live at the standard of living of an upper middle class Australian or American or French person or anywhere in well, the Western I mean, just world, doesn't have to be upper. Just two to mediums, fine. Okay, we'll go with middle class. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, minimum of two Earths required, two Earths worth of resources based on current levels of technology in order to achieve that objective. Obviously. Out of our means um, to do that. So, once again, are we really willing to continue with the current system that is predicated on never-ending growth, never-ending exploitation of a very finite natural resource base, and, yeah, but, I mean, and not bear, not grapple with the consequences of that, which are already coming? I mean, I guess, crystal clear to us. I mean, the point for us, though, is not in. Yeah, you know, for jointly venturing, isn't it really that look nationalism um, is a driver of this? Is isn't that the point we're making? I know I feel like it. I feel like saying that nationalism uh, is a driver of consumption beyond the limits a planet has. Okay, I feel like saying that somehow only having national governments um, is a uh, hides the truth of what's required to protect the planet, what's required not to destroy a planet. I, ha I have the feeling that nationalism, um, to, you know, to sort of borrow a quote from the internet, um, teaches us to take pride in stuff that we haven't done and to blame people we've never met <laughs> for the problems. That says it all. Yeah? That says so, it all. So, I mean, and, and, and so when we think about transcending the sort of policy which simply um, provides a license to destroy, I mean, when you've got national governments competing to have their natural resources destroyed by some fossil fuel type capitalist, mm -hmm. then surely we've, we're creating uh, sorry, surely we're exhibiting the, the best possible circumstances for the destruction of the planet. Whereas right. to ha if we can right. have policies that transcend nation states. So, for example, if you want to have a, um, an oil rig in the, in the Great Australian Bight, there's, don't for one moment think that the only government that can give you that is the government of South Australia mm -hmm. or the government of Australia. Mm -hmm. That should be a right 
that is only available from a world parliament because it has world ramifications. Yeah, and and this is why I think we're looking at the sort of projects that we're hoping to talk about: global voting systems, global taxation systems, and stuff for for, for as a way of like singing in the future, like what could it look like? Mm-hmm. And 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 not to say something wrong with Australia. Australia is just awesome, uh, and there's something wrong with our governments. You know, the people in our governments are fantastic. What's seems to me to be missing is some sort of planetary perspective because nationalism as a, just as you would have with local governments I mean you're going to be competing you know the local government for one suburban area is going to be competing with the local government with the other suburban area even if it's just at the level of children's sport I mean it's mm-hmm. natural for humans to compete and try and win um, so do you yeah, see... but what if the competition was, you know, who could plant more trees, who could reduce CO2 more quickly, you know, who could guarantee employment for the chronically unemployed, who could make sure that there's no homelessness? Those are really valuable things to compete about, in my opinion, you know, and, and also sports. Fine. It's fine to compete in sports. And even it's fine also to compete, you know, at a certain economic level. But when it comes to the point of, of, competition almost for the sake of competition which is really the the way in which the entire international community is built you know the whole system of nation states as useful and valid as that concept may have historically been and necessary as part of our global human evolution towards ever evolving levels of consciousness um Maybe they're not as valid today as they used to be, and maybe that's why nationalism is rearing its ugly head again. I mean, nationalism, seriously, is one of the the most simplistic, the most banal, most absurd sentiments that uh, that a human could have, as far as I'm concerned, as somebody who sees things in world-centric ways. I mean, but, if, if you have to rely... We're educated within a nationalistic system. Sure, most people, most places are taught exclusively along some semblance of nationalistic lines. I mean, some more, some more, yes, certainly an us and them thing. I mean, I grew up in the United States. Every day at school, I had to stand up and put my right hand on my heart and say, I pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to the republic on which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You know? So... Say what you may about that, um, but that was not teaching me that I'm part of the human race. That was not teaching me that the world is everyone's home. That was not teaching us me that all people everywhere were, were the same. No, it was totally nationalistic in orientation, and it was also you know religious in orientation and all sorts of other things. And you know we need to get beyond that. I mean the facts are clear. You know, we are all ultimately reliant on one place and one place alone, and that is Earth. Every single one of us, whether we're Bangladeshi or Botswanan or Brazilian or Belgian or whatever. And that's the way we need to organize ourselves politically and economically and socially. And unless we do, it's going to be a race to the bottom and, and you know, with consequences too dramatic to even articulate here. And nationalism isn't going to save us. Nationalism is this quick and easy fix, as it seems, to those who believe in it. Is Extinction Rebellion as a movement, is that uh, a light 
Is that is oh, that yeah. is that uh, is that transcend nationalism? Well, I think it's like it's the quintessential transnational movement. You know, isn't it going to be? That's based upon see? our collective and shared ecosystem, our collective and shared natural environment, our collective and shared atmosphere, and everything else. And you know, more and more people need to stand back and say. Where am I going to put my energy? You know, what side am I going to stand on? Am I going to continue to participate in an economic system? 200 species can go extinct every day. Am I going to become part of a system that is truly based on sustainability, truly based on the shared humanity that we all have with one another? But I mean, sometimes species go extinct because, I mean... Yeah, it's part I, of gonna, the evolutionary gonna, process. Well, well, I mean, but not at this rate. But the evolutionary process is like the Darwinian version. I don't, maybe I don't quite accept that as I've have done. Um, I mean, if a species is not fit enough to survive, it's bye bye, isn't it? That's one aspect of it. But what we're talking about now in this new era, this new epoch of the yeah. Anthropocene is that the vast majority of extinctions that are occurring are occurring because of humans' impact upon the natural environment. And that's where everything changes. And, you know, yes, things live and things die. That is the endless cycle of, of birth and, and so, rebirth. So is, is, is the sort of Easter Island syndrome something that you would accept, Scott, as the driving force of planetary crisis? I mean... Are humans actually responsible? And looks like we are. If we are... There's one reason and one reason only why, why there's 406 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere now. And it has nothing to do with volcanoes or any natural event. It has to do with humans burning fossil fuels. So that's just one example of many. I mean, animals do not clear-cut mountainsides, right? But, but, so, but I mean, can are humans going to kill their host? I mean, that's the, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm going to get to that point at some part of this dialogue, aren't I? Right, I mean, right. Is, I is, mean, does, it's does, not beyond the realms of possibility yeah. that that's what we're talking about. I mean, you know, we are also the only species to have derived the ability to make ourselves extinct through the, you know, the invention and the use and the possession of nuclear weapons. Um, obviously, no other species have done that. So there's something wrong with our species in that regard. Um, but there's got to also be something wrong if we're willing to have an economic system which is so based on the burning of non-renewable resources in order to have this level of luxury that we've gotten used to and and be unable to wean ourselves effectively from it in time to prevent um, major global catastrophe. Well, I mean, nuclear proliferation, um, you and I can remember when the prospects of a nuclear war and Armageddon following were were right at the forefront of human consciousness. Right. In the eighties, yeah. Seventies. Absolutely. And 80s. That's kind of how I got my, my political start. Yeah. yeah. Anti nuclear movement. And um, whereas these days perhaps the the non proliferation treaties and the way in which nation states have conducted wars since then, maybe that threat is less now than it was. And if that's the case, well, I'm maybe... I'm not sure it is. That's the problem. Mm. I mean, there's, there's still thousands upon thousands of warheads pointed in every direction. So 
we're no, we're not really any safer now than we were um, during the the pre the during the Cold War, during the immediate post Cold War period when there were, you know we're continuing nuclear discussions and disarmament talks, um, and in the post post Cold War era, we still have all those weapons. We have more and more countries talking about them all the time, as, and more and more countries are relying upon them as a means for securing their own uh, kind of you know despotic systems. I mean, North Korea being the most obvious one, um, and you know we even have you know Turkey today, yesterday speaking about the need to have their own nuclear weapons forces. Um, outside, apparently, the context of of NATO, and you know, this is really dangerous. This is ridiculous. This is absurd. You know, um, and we just we simply cannot go on thinking that th- that that methodology of doing things is going to bring us to the point that our planet could be at collectively as humans. And you know, we still continue to believe that. A bright and better future is absolutely within our grasp. You know? right. So we certainly it, have yes. not given up hope in yep. any any way, shape, or form. And you know, call it utopian if you want. You can call, use any terminology you want to be negative but about it. But is it a bright and better present? I mean, sure. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, the, it really the present, depends- the present is pretty special right at the moment for humans. The We've present got is always incredible. Special access to information you bet and disease eradication and incredible connectivity less extreme poverty than you know at any other time um as a percentage of humanity and probably less um severe hunger and malnutrition but nonetheless the problems remain in all of those sectors and far worse global climactic conditions and environmental conditions than ever before more plastic in the oceans than ever before you know, more deforestation than ever before, more mass consumption of non-renewable goods than ever before. I mean, so the list goes on in the negative direction as well. And it just seems that, you know, very few people, very few institutions are really willing to stand back from the whole thing, observe it, and really diagnose it even better than anyone has done to date and really start suggesting the type of remedies we need in order on with the goal being let's get the human race at least another thousand years well why hasn't this why haven't some of the answers for this come from our universities across the planet i think there's answers to a lot of these things um i mean almost all climate scientists for decades have been telling the politicians of the world what's going to happen and what is happening and some small degree of attention was paid to those things, but never really to the structural degree needed. And you could say that about almost every, uh, let's say, problem area in the world. If we wanted to solve the problem of extreme poverty, it is absolutely known what needs to be done, how much it would cost, and who could implement those policies. If, if we want to end you know, discrimination against disabled people, we know how to do it. You know, if we want to ensure greater participation of women in politics and other sectors of society, we know how to do it. All of these things are known. It's just a question of reaching that point. And that's, again, where nationalism and the forces behind nationalism, which tend generally to be conservative in nature, um, really need to be looked at as, uh, you know, problem areas rather than steps towards a solution well scott can you answer this who is responsible who is responsible 
Is it the United Nations? Is is there anyone there who said this is my responsibility or this is our responsibility? I mean, we are not going to hear that from any nation state. We're going to hear the opposite. We're going to we're going to hear climate change is not our responsibility. There's only so much we can do because we're just one country. Who is responsible? Well, I mean, that's a gigantic question. And in a way, everybody is responsible, but ultimately it's governments that are responsible and it's the multinational corporations that tend to do most of the natural resource exploitation that are responsible far more than any other entity or certainly individual. And there was a really good article in The Guardian recently by George Mombio where he said that that was the greatest, the success of the corporate fossil fuel industry is is making individual people feel like they are responsible for climate change instead of taking responsibility for the absolutely overwhelming majority of climate change that that sector has been responsible for. So, you know, ultimately, though, all of us are responsible for everyone else. I mean, that's the way I look at it. And all of us are responsible in every way for preserving not only the planet, but the rest of the human race that we all, uh, you know, experience at the same time. So it's, you know, the UN does what it can. The UN does extraordinary things, but the UN is simply not able to do more because they're simply a body that's accountable to member states. I mean, the the UN, as great as it is, and as much progress as, as they have shown the well, world, well, hang on a second. they're not, based upon nation states in saying, the General Assembly voting. So the on, system is based on nation states, not on some supernatural Are, are you saying that the UN is like a union for nation states, like other than as a transcendent body, something that can give us policies the for budget, the budget. Uh, let's look at it purely from a budgetary perspective. Okay. I mean, the budget does not come from a global tax. Like I would be more than willing to pay a global tax that went directly to the UN. Bill me, I'll pay it. Up to a very large amount. And I think a lot of people would. That's not how it's funded. It's not funded by cool philanthropists. It's not funded by foundations. It's not funded by... Uh, individual you know, taxpayers. And certainly not individual taxpayers. It's funded by individual nation states, which are assessed based upon their um, gross domestic product. But they also have some and like many, charitable donations and stuff. Yeah, I mean, very few. But the, We see this in our... In our charities today here in Australia, um, they ask for funding from the public, but the majority of their funding comes from the government. Well, that can happen, yeah. But you know, but the fact but, of the matter but is... But how can that charity then articulate policies inconsistent with their, f their funders' interests? And this is the point I'm putting to you about well, the Well, that's UN. the point I'm trying to make, is yeah. that you well, know, we agree on this. governments mm. essentially pay the budget of the UN. And so even though there are many, many people and many institutions and agencies within the UN that would like to go much further than they currently can in terms of doing the job, the incredible jobs that they do, eradicating poverty, helping refugees, etc., they are dependent on the budget, on their budgets, which are funded by governments, many of which do not pay, most notably the United States, who's more than $1 billion behind in paying their annual dues um, to the United Nations right now, which may lead to the UN not paying staff salaries for a whole month um, soon. It was just reported in the papers. So, 
what what if we had a system which was was based upon individual tax receipts instead of uh, nation states? That might be one and, way. And so, or in addition to so so for those of us who just feel, rethinking the whole budgetary yeah. question of the UN, who you know, why is it only that nation states the primary source of funds? For so them? so why not something? More? So so if one feels an more of an allegiance to other humans than one feels to one's country, for example, then, um, and more of an allegiance to the planet, mm-hmm. uh, or, or an equal allegiance, mm-hmm. perhaps is a better way of putting it, or, or, or an allegiance that has some nuances. A simultaneous allegiance. Uh, it has levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Um, those individuals would be the individuals who could fund world or planetary policy development but, but where's that going to where's the, is that going to emerge from the un Do the, does the un have some sort of emergent independent policy arm um or are we sort of left with you know sort of the think tanks funded by the really rich people it just seems a bit no i mean it's, it would take hours and hours to explain the the details and dynamics of of how the UN works, but essentially, you know, the biggest decisions, the budgetary decisions are made by member states at the General Assembly, and each one of the agencies is given a mandate to achieve Oh, no, I get all that. What right? I'm ta- what I'm, is there a... We come back to this point about how free are you if you've got no money. Mm-hmm. We, do, we come back to that point always, right now. We're in a neoliberal pay-to-play society. But let's talk about okay, the- how free are you without any money? Your answer was Buddhist monk. Okay. Let's just reconsider the answer. Okay. Um, is there any opportunity for there to be world policy platform which has freedom beyond the nation state? What's I mean, the in opportunity many, for that? In many respects, we already have that. If you look at it from an international legal perspective or an international human rights perspective, okay. I mean, that entire system is predicated on the inalienable rights and inalienable equality and dignity shared by all human beings. Yeah, but I'm talking, about, respons- it, I'm talking right? about responsibility. I'm not talking about rights. I- I'm trying to identify who's responsible. Once again, you have to look at you, you got to look at it in very in very specific ways. You know, who's responsible for implementing a certain policy is a different question than who's responsible for you're cutting a mountainside and all of the other levels of responsibility. So I would always say, in a way, every single person is responsible at the same time. Obviously, governments being the sole, you know, power holders within a legal system are responsible, and you know. From a problematic well, angle, clearly well, multinationals are well, responsible, but are well, so, able to act outside a legal framework. Okay, so 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 you're at, what you're basically saying is national sovereignty is the current position, and there is no world or planet sovereignty. It just isn't one. Because if there was, then at the planet would be responsible for itself. Is that the position? It, is, has it, is evolution responsible for this? I mean, once again, you know, if you look at it from an international legal perspective, mo- the overwhelming majority of decisions grounded in international law are made by nation states. The decision to ratify a human rights treaty, for instance, is not made by 
some supranational body. Indeed, it's indeed. Made, made by Luxembourg or uh, some other national, country. National sovereignty but, drives but the United so, Nations. But in no so doubt. doing, though... And the union. The union of nations. You give yeah. up a degree of sovereignty by virtue of agreeing to comply with an international set of rules. Sure, right? sure, sure. And that's a really important point. It's even more so in the European Union, probably more than any other global, any other regional or global body. In the European Union context, you give up significant amount, amounts of sovereignty because it's in your interest to do so. You get a lot more back than you give. So you're, of course, willing to give up a degree of sovereignty if you get more resources, better economy, more freedom, those types of things. So it's not at all a question of, you know, a zero, it's not a zero sum game equation. People are, people and institutions and nation states are willing to give up certain things in order to get more, right? Things that people don't think they're willing to give up. And you, you know, any, any country in the world has given up a measure of sovereignty because they get more out of being a party to a particular treaty than they would otherwise. Well, the same, a whole thing, range of other... same thing applies to road rules. I mean, the user of a road yeah, gives right, up right. the freedom to drive fast because exactly. it's safer. To... Exactly. But let's go back to that whole question of allegiance. I think it's really important, you know, to consider. It, there's all of whoever's listening to this, you are a member of your family Simultaneous with being a member of your neighborhood, simultaneous with being a member of your community or your village or your town, and simultaneous with your other local level, whether you're in a state or a territory or some other sub-national entity, and your nation state. All simultaneous with one another without giving up anything in any one of those categories in order to be a member of one of the other categories. Very much the same thing would occur if we equally had allegiance to the earth itself or to the human race, right? So that's really the question. It's not a question of giving up something. It's a question of gaining something more. It's a question of walking one more rung up the ladder. Yeah, like including look, including all we've got and going one step further. One step further because it's beneficial to yeah. you. It's beneficial to everybody else. It's beneficial to the planet. It opens up the possibility of a better future, whereas nationalism... And looking increasingly inward and, and, and basing all of your decisions on fear of the other didn't bring you nowhere in the end. It might give you a little short-term, you know, sugar hit. But after a while, you're going to realize that was what a ridiculous decision we made. And if you look at history, nationalism almost never ends very pretty. Well, on that, on that point, let's, let's finish up, Scott. Um, and uh, interesting to see, it will be interesting to see um, whether... The extinction rebellion symbol, and uh, help us um, move to a, you know, to have a, a more planetary or, or to feel more allegiance to our planet. Uh, it certainly invokes that feeling in me. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. So thanks a million for listening, everybody. Tell your friends and your family and your fellow humans about jointly venturing. If you want to send us um, ideas. For future topics, please feel free to do so, and we look forward to hearing from all of you very soon. All the best. Take care, everyone. Okay, bye for now.